Having a Gas is the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries. And in particular, finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for dancing to, for cooking to, f***ing to, and more. Today, I'm having a gas with Michaela Longdon, an up-and-coming actress in Manchester. Whilst Michaela's primary experience is as an actress, she recently wrote, produced, and starred in a frighteningly honest short film called Asphyxiate. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you doing today? I'm good, yeah. Great. So, uh, how was the acting gig going in lockdown? Oh, it's very quiet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very much so. It's good. I'm keeping myself busy. I'm trying to write more. Yeah. Um, and I've been working at a test site, so I'm actually quite busy. I'm busier than ever because I've got a lot of personal projects that I wanted to do, and now I'm working full time as well. It's um, it's all go. Good. Well, that's good. Yeah. I feel quite happy. Yeah, because a lot of people have been uh, concerned that they uh, have not enough to do and they're running out of, as in using up all of the work that they had on their plate and spreading it out over many, many weeks. So it's always good to be busy. It's always good to have more to do. So why don't you tell us about um, what brought you to where you are now? So obviously you are a professional actress. Uh, you've appeared in a number of you know high-profile things as well as making your own projects. But where did that start and how did you get here? It started in a lovely place called Chesterfield, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, which is just over the peaks. Um, <clears throat> I was raised by my mum on her own. Uh, she was a single parent. My dad left when, when I was three. Mm-hmm. Um, wasn't a great relationship. And yeah, I was brought up with my sister called Zara, who's amazing. And we are very, very close. And I went to university at the age of 18. Mm-hmm. Um, I studied drama and theatre studies. I was kind of, I wanted to go to drama school, but at that period of my life, I felt kind of, when you come from such a working class background, I didn't feel that that was where I should be. Um, I didn't feel like that that was a career that I, I could pursue at yeah. that moment in time. Because a lot of people, obviously, who do go into acting are from, you know, much more... <clears throat> Uh, wealthy backgrounds mm-hmm. because it's a very unstable career. Yes. So you, you need that support. Um, or so I thought. Mm. So yeah, so I went to uni and I did drama and theatre studies because I loved it. Didn't really know what I was going to do with myself. When I graduated, I was working at Nando's at the time yes. as a waitress. And one of the managers was like, I don't really know what I'm going to do now. Like, obviously just leaving uni, knew deep down that I wanted to be an actress, still not ready. <laughs> and uh, one of the managers said, there's a grad scheme going. And at the time I wasn't particularly, I don't think I was one of her favourite waitresses. <laughs> I kind of, you know, I took it as it was, like, I enjoyed myself at uni. Um, I, I was great with people, so my customer service was always great, but, you know, I wasn't, I wouldn't say one of the most hard workers. I was quite chatty, but they, they told me about this position and I don't think they expected me to get it, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and yeah, I did. 8,000 people applied and I was one of eight that got onto this graduate scheme. Um, and I did that for about a year and a half and it was going really well and they were an amazing company to work for, actually. But then I realised something was missing and I was speaking to my housemate at the time and I was like... I really just want to act. I, I've always wanted to do this. During this period, I've managed to put some money aside, some savings aside. Um, and I thought, 
you know what, I am going to apply. And I looked online to see what drama schools were available. And there was one in the north, a drama school, a drama school called Alra um, in Wigan, of all places. So I applied and four days later, I had my audition. And I turned up to the audition with my top on back to front. Oh, <laughs> nightmare, to be honest. Like, I was quite unprepared because I, not unprepared because I'd, you know, revised two scripts. I picked um, a contemporary script that was quite short mm-hmm. so I could learn it really well and perform it uh, to the best of my ability because obviously the time constraint of four days, I wanted to make sure I gave it my all. And the script was quite unusual. It was a, a man. It was an, weirdly. It was a um, not an abusive man, but it was a, a murderer. Oh right. He'd murdered this small child. So it was co- completely out of my casting. Uh, you know, uh, I was playing against gender, against stereotype. And I thought, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to go with this. It's a bit different. Maybe it'll give me that edge. And I went and I did the audition and. Uh, when we went for the interview stage, because there's an interview stage, the only question he asked me was, can you afford this? And I said, no. <laughs> and that was the only question he asked me. Um, and I got, I, I got full scholarship. I was very, very fortunate enough to get full scholarship to go. And so I did. So I went for 15 months. It's a 15 month master's course. Um, really intense. Um, I learned so, so much during that period about myself, about the business. Um, and I came out and, um, yeah, I was, I was buzzing. I was quite excited. I was thirsty and I was really lucky. The first job I got, I'd worked with a, a woman called Liz Postlethwaite. She's a director. I'd worked with her at drama school and she offered me the chance to audition for a theatre tour that she was doing called Lost Boy Racer at the time. And that was going all the way around Yorkshire. So it was going to Harrogate, Wakefield, uh, Manchester Lowry. <clears throat> and it was following the Tour de France. It was about a guy who cycled the Tour de France in his garage. Um, and I got the part. And with that, I got a better agent. And here I am today. Um, yeah, so it's been... I've been in the acting industry now six, seven years. Yeah. And so, so yeah. that's really, it's, it's good to hear that because, um, as you said, a lot of people will be um, under the impression that you were under uh, back at the age of, let's say, 18, uh, which is that there are, uh, some, there are some unassailable barriers into this industry, which is obviously enormously competitive. And you have to be able to handle quite personal rejection a lot if you're auditioning constantly, you know. And um, But a lot of people will be put off uh, and a lot of people at the university age will be thinking as I was, oh, well, if I've not gotten anywhere by 21, then it's game over and I'll have to just do a different life. And so it's really good to hear that you can be on one path and then you can... You know, you had your moment of realization, and I'm actually going to pursue what it was that I wanted to pursue. And, uh, you know, there are obviously a couple of strokes of luck along the way, but mostly, would you say that it comes down to uh, putting in the hours as much as anything else and, uh, and, and not being de- deterred by, you know, what you, bu- what you imagine the obstacles might be? Yeah, you drew on a few things there. You have to be good at failure. And that's something I've learned along the way. Um, failure for an actress or an actor is, it comes a lot. And you can't take it personally. 
because mm-hmm. it isn't a personal attack on your ability and that's hard to accept in the beginning you don't get it you're so confused you're like why didn't I get this part like I went here I did everything I was supposed to I still didn't get it and it's frustrating um, and I cried and I went had down days and you know you go through this process in the first couple of years of your career where, you're, where you really don't understand mm-hmm. how to deal with this um, constant rejection mm-hmm. but then after a while you start to realise um, okay well it's probably not to do with my ability now because you start to reaffirm your faith in your ability because you've been doing it for a few years and maybe you have got some good parts along the way and you have got a supportive network around you. I have a, a very close best friend who's an actress and she is my support network wholeheartedly and she reaffirms my faith after every rejection. Um, so yeah, so you get to a point where now I don't really, when I do an audition, I don't really think I'm going to get the role. Mm. kind of just put it to bed it's, it's got to that point where I do the audition and I enjoy it that was another really important thing I had to learn I had to learn to enjoy the audition process mm-hmm. because in the beginning I was there's so much pressure on getting the part and you, you, you end up not enjoying the process and yeah. if you're not enjoying the process why are you doing it? you sacrifice so much to be an actor so much you, you sacrifice holidays the amount of times I've got roles that I've had to cancel holidays, you sacrifice weddings, you sacrifice mm. meeting with friends. Think you're, you're dropping your life at, at any moment to go to an audition. Mm-hmm. So if you don't enjoy the process, what what is the point? Yeah, if you don't enjoy the process, it sounds as if you'll only feel like you're all you're doing is missing bits of life. Yeah. Uh, and if if it sounds like you construe the the process of being of being an actor as the whole thing from hearing about the audition to, you know, getting paid at the end of the job. You can't only view the job as once you've got the script, once you've got the part. Exactly. And that's a misconception mm-hmm. because people think that the actor's job is getting the part. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just acting, right? No, yeah. it's not. It's the whole process. Like you said right there, it is that whole process. And that's one thing that I don't think drama school particularly teaches you that's something that you learn along the way but I don't know how you would teach that I think you have to go through it yeah I know what you mean it's uh, in the same way that uh, I mean we, we there's we complain a lot about education not preparing people for what whatever we mean when we say the real world um, but as you say there are some things that you can't be taught so we can't simulate a thousand auditions and 999 rejections you can't you can't do some weird <laughs> experiment where you would create that process. And Brian, uh, Brian Cranston, I remember him saying that a lot of actors feel like when they get the audition, they're applying for a job, and when they don't get the role, they failed. But it, uh, I think the analogy he drew is it's more like stepping up to bat. You know, you're still on the team even if you miss, and you just go back again when it's your turn. Yeah, absolutely. And if you know, if you if you do your best and you smash the audition, maybe stay in their mind. Maybe maybe you're right for another part. And that's all you can do. And you have to celebrate getting an audition as well now. That's another thing that I learned along the way. Mm-hmm. Because auditions are few and far between as well, actually. It's quite a lot. It's, it's a lot of luck um, to even get invited in, especially when you're a female in your 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, the competition is steep. Everyone wants to be an actress or an actor. Yeah. I'm not saying that it's not the same for males. Of course it is, but particularly with women, you know, at drama school, I think we had four guys in our class and 11 girls. Yeah. Um, that, that just says the ratio of men to women in this field. Yeah, I heard something when I was in uh, performing arts when I was 17 um, that 
plays are written for men, but women want to act. It's something like that. Yeah, it's, it's quite frustrating, actually. It's something mm. that's come out very, very recently that, you know, the, the acting community is overridden with females, but female stories are kind of put on the back burner and they play the subject rather than the... Uh, they play the object rather than the subject mm-hmm. and uh, the male plays the object and he, you know, the the, the, the world centres around him and his story. That's mm-hmm. something that's changing and I think it's changing quite quickly. We have a lot of role model, models out there like Jennifer Lawrence who, um, you know, stand up and say women's stories need to be told. Reese Witherspoon is another one. Um, so, yeah, hopefully, hopefully there's a change coming. Yeah. Uh, women's stories will also get told. So as well think, as people of different races. Yeah, of course. There's um, well, there's, there's lots of discussion about those type of issues at the moment. But an interesting one to me is particularly around what happens with, uh, let's say, different age groups. So you were saying a lot. There's a lot of competition for women in their twenties, mm-hmm. um, and I don't know. I don't know quite how to phrase this, but I've always got the sense of if you ever see a male star breaking through to become a you know, because when they become well-known, they're often in their mid-30s. It rarely happens before that. And do you feel like that's different for women? It's like, you know, the, the sort of the 20s are when you were... We're talking about Jennifer Lawrence, right? She was 23 when she got her Oscar, which is, yeah. you know, really unprecedented. So I don't know how to quite phrase the question, but it's something like, is there a differential in, you know, distribution of success for men and women as actors and actresses? Again, I kind of think it's changing. Okay. You know, there's this theory that women... Uh, grow old in a less appealing way than men Mm. (laughs) which is awful really Um, so women are in their prime they're seen as in their prime when they're in their 20s they're what people want to watch what people want to see aspire to this beautiful girl in her 20s brilliant yeah let's put her as a lead or put her as the supporting artist males on the other hand um, have more gravitas when they're in their 30s this is quite an archaic concept I I must admit and I I do again think it's changing I'm starting to feel like women in their 30s and in their 40s you're starting to see them more and I'm and Prime and on Netflix and in feature films Um, and that's that's amazing it's amazing that older women's stories are also being told and I think that's because of the move towards women being the object now Mm -hmm. because you know, you, you have more of a story to tell when you're in your 30s. You've got more life um, experience. Yeah. Um, so I'm hoping there is a move towards that. Obviously, you know, it is a, it's another slow movement. There, there are stereotypes between age, gender, um, race uh, that, we, that we have to kind of fight against continuously within this field. Yeah. So um, why don't you... Um tell us about some of your you know some some of what you feel like some of your biggest triumphs are so far in your career because it's still quite a um what you might you might consider this one day to still be the very early days of your career you were saying you've been in it for seven years and we hope that it's gonna just be an upward trajectory but so far what have the highlights been so the first highlight uh was working with a group called uh dark rift films um, we did a feature film called The Creature Below. I find, found it on Casting Call Pro. It's called Mandy at the moment. I auditioned, uh, sent over a self-tape, went over in person, and they they hired me for the part, which was amazing. It was a low-budget feature film. Um, it was their first feature film. And everyone's got that one feature film where, you know, they started from. That's mine, and that's theirs. And I'm, I am really, really proud of it. Um, 
some of the CGI is a bit questionable, but, <laughs> but as far as first feature films go, I, it was such, it was a moment for me because my passion is screen acting. Mm-hmm. So to get that under your belt, I mean, it was my second feature, but it was the first one where I had a, a really prominent part and the, the team were amazing. It, it wasn't just the fact that I got the role. It was working with such an incredible production company who are now my friends. Uh, the two people uh, involved in that, uh, Stuart Spark and Paul Butler, they're they're incredible. They're absolutely amazing. Another guy called Carl O'Connell, he is in it as well. And they've become not only um, people I work with, but people I go to um, in times of need. Um, friends, I went to Sparky's wedding. Um, I've got to know his wife, who's also an actress, and she's amazing. And... For that reason, um, that was one of the most memorable and exciting projects that I took part in. It also led to a, another role. They, they did Book of Monsters. They did another feature film and they wrote a part specifically for me, mm-hmm. um, which is amazing. Like they, they liked me that much that they brought me back and they wrote me a role. Yeah. And Book of Monsters did really well. It circulated to a global level and it's on uh, Sky Cinema at the moment. Uh, it's also on Amazon Prime, so definitely check it out. Um, <laughs> a little plug there. Um, so yeah, so that was probably one of my first ones. Book of Monsters is also obviously a very, very um, successful film at the moment. It's doing quite well for what it was made with. Um, yeah, it's it's for those of you who don't know about it, it's an 80s style horror film, comedy horror, and it, it kind of doesn't take itself too seriously. Mm-hmm. So you have to watch it with that in mind. Yes. Um, other things, I suppose, obviously getting your first TV gig, that's an incredible experience. A man was in Doctors. Yeah. I uh, played a chubby single mum, <laughs> um, which says a lot about my casting type. And How was it getting into that character? How was the, how was the sort of the process there? Oh, well, you know, I, I watched my mum struggle. Yes, there you go. <laughs> I watched my mum struggle growing up, and I can I can be a bit fiery at times, so it was quite easy to kind of get into that role. I grew up on a, a council estate with lots of women who reminded me of this. So, yeah, um, yeah not not too difficult to be honest. I could relate quite quite well to this uh, to this character, which is probably why I got the role to be honest. Um, but yeah, and then from that, writing my own short film. That has to be um, definitely one of the biggest um, things I had to overcome. When you talked about earlier about those restrictions that you place on yourself, mm-hmm. um, some people call them like uh, paradigms, like we need paradigm shifts to believe that we can do certain things. Yes. Um, yeah, certain restrictions that we put on ourselves or things that we can believe we can and can't do. A writer, that was one of the things that I didn't think I could do. Mm-hmm. And it took for a, a very bad situation for me to actually overcome that belief um, and produce something that I'm really, really proud of. So yeah, there's quite, quite a lot of highs, a lot of highs. I, I do feel very fortunate. And you yeah. have to remember them. You have to always remember the highs. Yeah, yeah. And what about, um, so when you've, do you do you have to draw on those when you're going through maybe a valley when there's a few auditions in a row that haven't come back? And is it important to have, I suppose, uh, a virtue that isn't, is not so fashionable to discuss at the moment, but you have to have faith. You know, it's like, I believe that this good will come of this if I continue back, you know, going against 
the the wave of rejections that are coming my way yeah it's 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 definitely a good thing to do to draw on your successes mm. when you're going through that period but I also find that it's okay not to be okay during that yeah. period mm-hmm. you know so many people say you know just get up go on to the next one but I think you kind of have to accept that okay you're in a lull mm-hmm. um your confidence may have been knocked and you're not feeling particularly positive about the future of your mm-hmm. career at that mm-hmm. moment. And that's all right, because everybody feels like that way yeah. in every career. So that's okay. So accept it, deal with it, mm-hmm. look at the positives, draw on those, and try and remain some perspective that, you know, those silly thoughts that crop into your head and you say, oh my God, I'm a rubbish actor. What am I doing? But am I, am I a rubbish actor? Did I really get into drama school? Did I really get a scholarship? Did I get into this, that, and the other? You know, draw on those things and accept the thought, but then use your logic to come out of that. And you find that the more you practice doing that, the easier it gets over time. So whereas I might have lulled for a week, now I lull for maybe an hour. Yes. Yeah, that's good. Reducing that that lead time of uh, of disappointment. We in my business, we get the same because we don't have to audition, but we have to pitch for jobs. You know, we get it. Uh, you know, emails coming in. Uh, we've got a I don't know a commercial for uh, we had one last year. We've got an advert for Enterprise Rent a Car with Gerard Butler, and you know, so it's a huge thing. And you're like, ah, here we go, big time. So we fi- we fire off four compositions, and then you wait for a few days, and then. <laughs> Really sorry, we went with someone else this time. And so if you, you know, that happens a lot. And um, uh, you, I, I find a weird thing is you learn to appreciate your, the lows because you're like, yeah, this is all part of the, this is all part of the tasting board, the emotional, you know, the emotional uh, tasting board of life. And when you get the, uh, when it lands, there's nothing like it when you get that confirmation. So you have to really live for those moments. I'm with you with that. Like every time you have a low period, I'm reading a book at the minute by Mo Gauda. He talks about these low periods in life and how if you're at peace, you're ready to fight those low periods and you can go through them. Mm-hmm. But those are the periods that strengthen us, that make us stronger, that, that make us who, who we are. Um, and I think it's really important that you do grow and you develop and you use, and you use those low periods as a, as a learning curve along the way. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, I also think it's what's, what I like is you know, finding the right balance when you've got, so in my, in my work, it may be the producer, but for you and, you know, it may be the casting director or whoever is calling the shots at the audition. For them to be appropriately honest without being, what would you say, without feeling dismissive? Because we, me and one of my friends went for an audition when we were 18 for the Stone Roses film, Spike Island. Now, neither of us are or were actors, but it's one of those things, you know, when there's an open call that goes out to everyone, you're like, yeah, why not? And um, yeah, the uh, that was one a few years ago. Do you remember that? <laughs> I remember that. I, so many people went in 2013. It was like I'm going to be the face of Star Wars, and <laughs> in my view, it was possibly just the most effective marketing exercise by Disney ever because all of a sudden everyone was talking about Star Wars. But I remember. Did you go? By the way, yes, I did. Of course. <laughs> Absolutely, hundred so, percent. I think I think everyone went. Everyone I knew went. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was quite the experience. Do you think you could have? Uh, do you think you could have um, competed with Daisy? Do you think you could have done uh, done that role? You know what? No, I, I'm a firm believer in your time and place. And right back then, I had all of those limiting beliefs about myself that it wasn't possible for me, hmm. and that affects your behaviour. And yeah. that's something that I've had to work on over the last seven years. I read a lot of 
what you'd call them, self-help books and books about power of the subconscious thought and power of now and being present. And um, I'm a firm believer that, you know, you have to work at getting yourself to a stage where you do have that belief and you're not bound by your bound limit about by limitations about yourself you know yeah um so back then absolutely not it would have come through it comes through in your behavior in the way that you act the way that you are the way that you communicate if you have those limiting beliefs no one wants to hire someone who doesn't think that they're worthy yes that's right yeah and um, I remember actually two of my friends who went to the audition you were talking about, and I don't know if it was the same for you, but they said what the experience was. It was basically a, a three hour long queue and then you get to the end of it and someone goes either left, which means go home or right, which means you sort of look right. <laughs> yes, which is what it's like in the industry. Yes. You know, casting directors get a picture of your face. They click on which ones they like. Yeah. Um, and I heard a horrible thing recently that... Um, it, it runs A to Z sometimes. Oh. So, you know, if your last name ends in a Z, you're right at the bottom of the pile. So they might not even get to you. Like, yeah. mine's L, so I'm halfway. So at least that's, you know, slightly positive. But yeah, they, they get pictures, they're clicking which photo they like, and then they start looking at your profile once you've hit that one because there are so many people and it's saturated. And the other sad thing is you actually don't normally get to hear the no. You're just left with nothing. Oh, you really? So it's, it's, it's just a, a yeah, hanging. Yeah, so you do the audition, you leave, and you're like, oh, yeah, it's, it smashed it. Silence. <laughs> yeah, and you have to just take that silence as I guess it drifted away this time. But yeah. Um, yeah, it was literally what you were saying reflected that what the casting director said to us at the Spike Island thing, because you just came in, and obviously we're a load of 18-year-old boys. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe I'll become a, a film star. And she said, look, in film, either your face fits or it doesn't. So if it doesn't, sorry, don't take it personally. Okay, you, 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 in you go. And then the rest go home. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. That's, that is the reality. You know, they're, they're looking at everything. They're looking at, and you have to be accepting of who you are and what you sell as well. Yeah. So I'm a redhead. Um, I come across quite fiery at times and confident and quite energetic. That's what I sell. That's who I am. Um, if a role comes up for a meek character who's quite quiet and reserved, yeah, I can probably act it quite well. I can I can do that. But if someone walks in with those attributes already, they're probably going to get the part. Yes. That's the way that you have to look at it. So I always take a, a the story I always remember is Amy Adams' uh, audition for Catch Me If You Can. Do you know that one? Yeah, I love that film. Yeah, so she went in like with braces, not washed her hair, all, you know, messed up because you knew that's what the character looked like and she was feeding off what you're saying, which is that you have to walk in as the person you're going to play. Unless, I mean, maybe unless, do you think it changes when you you develop a profile, you become a known name and then the casting directors start to think of you as, you know, as an actress or as an actor, as a comprehensive thing? It's like, do we think... You know, so it's like Michaela has just done, uh, you know, these three films in the last two years. So we know what her abilities are, but do we think she could do this? Well, let's call her in, you know, so you don't have to ha- be as much the character when you arrive. Uh, when, when yeah, you have they a, already have a sense of who you are. Yeah. Um, whether you're fit for that particular role. Um, you know, in, in my experience, you draw on what you can from the character, disregarding... Uh, what doesn't work and adding what isn't you a little bit, but you can't, you can't over egg it. If that makes sense. In, in my experience, they will always go with someone who kind of fits it a little bit more naturalistically. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Um, uh, it's, not, it's not always the case. Obviously, like I've, I've played um, a psychotic nurse. I'm not a psycho. Mm-hmm. 
but I I could I can draw on some of my personality qualities um, and heighten them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't turn up as a psycho. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I'm not sure if I'm explaining myself no, well. It's it's drawing on what you can um, from it, from an honest place. That's the important part. It has to be honest mm-hmm. because when it becomes dishonest, people see through it, especially on the camera lens. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very, very obvious to see when someone's just putting on an act. As in the same, when you meet someone in person, you feel like they're putting on an act. You can see it straight away. Yeah. The camera yeah. So but obviously when we are playing like bigger roles like that, we do have to draw on certain things in order to play them. Um, like our imagination is key. Mm. My imagination is, is, is one of the best things that I have. Um, and getting into the mindsets when I'm when I'm going for an audition like that, I really have to get in the mindset of someone who is psychotic. You know, I have to read things. You don't believe you're psychotic when you're psychotic. Mm. So you have to make sure that you have that belief when you're in there and you're in the room that your character in your head, you're completely normal. They're doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, why don't we, because you talked about the fact that the camera picks up on things um, mm. in a way that is difficult to do at a distance, but you've done some theatre. So... I remember Bill Nye said when I saw him uh, speak, he said, I'm not one of those actors who believes that theatre is the real thing. But um, there is there are qualitative differences in the experience. So why don't you talk to us about what your, you know, in the theatre experience you've had, what the difference is with the kind of performance you have to do and how your, you know, how you how your experience changes in that in that environment. Yeah, there are some people that say that theatre acting and screen acting is is the same thing. I, I completely disagree. Yeah. Massively. The, the theatre, you know, you're talking to an auditorium of hundreds of people. Mm-hmm. The camera, it, it's like you're talking to one person and they're really in your face. Mm-hmm. So that's got to change the way that you approach this. Um, theatre is live. That's obviously the biggest difference. And you have to remember when you get a part on camera, you can retake. Don't worry too much. Take that pressure off. You can retake. It can go again. If, if it's low budget, you know, you're limited with that <laughs> by all means. So um, don't take that for granted. But, you know, theatre is live mm. and mistakes happen and you will forget your lines. And I forgot my lines in drama school. I remember I was playing uh, Squealer in Animal Farm. And I'd got a bit cocky with the role, actually. This was like our eighth show. We were doing a tour around the Northwest. And, you know, and you know, you're just a bit like, oh, yeah, I can like play it around a bit now and I can do whatever I want kind of thing. Got a little bit cocky. And all of a sudden, the lines just went, they went mid-speech. And Squealer has these really long speeches. And, you know, it was a full auditorium. And I was looking at the guys, like in my drama school, like my other characters, like these other animals looking at me. And I just started snorting. That's the only thing in my head that I could think to do. I was like, just snort, Michaela, just snort. Someone will get it. And I looked at one of the girls in my class and I snorted at her. My eyes said everything. And she picked up the line and we went back in it. But after that... I was really scared. So it affected the rest of my performance because there was a fear there. But weirdly, the people who watched that performance and the reviewer said it was the, like the reviewer loved it. They thought that I'd put in like these strange squeals and snorts randomly, which obviously wasn't the case. It was, I'd forgot my lines. And other people who'd watched me several times said it was the most interesting performance and the best performance that you'd done. Mm. Probably because there was a lot of realness to it. Yeah. 
you know, that bubbling under the surface. So yeah, so the live aspect, you have to get to grips with the fact, yeah, you might mess up and that's okay. It's how you deal with that situation. Um, and things might go wrong. When we told Lost Boy Racer, he was cycling and, and the, the pedal came off. <laughs> so we improvised for a while until we fixed it. And the guy was supposed to be a mechanic in, in it. And so he's supposed to be good at like fixing things and he was really struggling. So obviously I was making reference. I thought he was supposed to be good at that. And the whole audience was laughing. Mm-hmm. And those moments are amazing in theatre because they're real. Um, so yeah, so I suppose being ready for the fact that it's live and speaking to a wider audience, a, a, a bigger audience, you know, it affects the way that you use your voice, the way that you use your body. Um, and you need to be aware of that when you're in, in theatre. Um but there still needs to be truth. There's still, you still need to play the truth and be honest. Um, but potentially a little bit bigger because your audience is further away. Yeah. Whereas with screen, obviously they're closer. And would you recommend, uh, would you not recommend people looking at screen acting as acting with a safety net? Like you should still be imagining that you have the, the constraints of theatre when you're screen acting, which is that. Uh, you can't go again if it goes wrong. You have to imagine every take's going to be the take. Or um, does it, is it does it change like that? I wouldn't. That's not the advice I would give, to mm-hmm. be honest. Yeah. Um, because that m- makes people nervous. And when we're nervous, we have tensions in our face. So our eyebrows go a bit funny. We start biting our mouths and mm. the jaw gets locked. And we want to remove those. And it's not the reality. The reality is, in screen, we can retake. So... If you remove, if you say to someone, I teach at some screen as well. So if I say to my kids, you know, we can go again. Don't worry. Just take that pressure off. You can guarantee they won't mess up. If I tell them, you've got one take. That's it. Mess up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's the brain. Yeah. The, 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 the subconscious thought is, oh my God, this, this can't go wrong. And then that's all you think about. You just think about it not going wrong. You don't get into the role. You don't activate your imagination. All of a sudden, wait, it's gone wrong. <laughs> yeah, it's a fair point, actually. So uh, uh, by comparison, when we, when we have a vocal take in the, in the, in the studio here, um, what I uh, sometimes do is I say, okay, let's go for a rehearsal take. Just, you know, feel it out and then hit record. So they don't know they're recording. They often do their best take that way. Oh, absolutely. 100%. And it goes for the same when I'm doing um, self-tapes. I'll always film a rehearsal with my friend. Mm -hmm. A lot of the time, I'll nail it. Yeah. So that's really interesting, That uh, the the way of approaching something as if it's really happening. (sighs) What's the best way of phrasing it? If you say this is the real thing, then all of a sudden it becomes not the real thing because that, you know, overtakes your, like, your... um, nervous system almost you know it'd be like saying don't think about a white elephant straight away that's what you're doing what are you thinking about 100% you do you need to take that pressure off Mm -hmm. because the reality is you can go again and it's obviously it's not best practice to practice going again you know um, I pride myself on my ability to not need many takes and that's something that I've learned because I've worked in low budget films you don't have the time time is money so you know a lot of the time I'd be working with Dark Rift and Sparky would go brilliant we got it and I'd be like what that was the first take like let me go again I can do better and he'd be like no 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 Kayla it's brilliant let's go and you just you stood there thinking oh my god like what if it's really rubbish but then you have to have faith in the director. Sparky's an amazing director. He would tell me. He, yeah. he knows whether it was good enough. I put my faith in him. I watch it and I go, oh, actually, that was really good. And it's the same with self-tapes. Sometimes when I first started, 
if I started doing self-tapes, I'd do like 50 self-tapes for one audition. Now I do three mm. because I've probably got it in the first three. And yes. when I did 50, I picked probably the second one anyway. Yeah, so yeah. Like, what is the point? But, but yeah. You have the same selection uh, bias as you do when things run from A to Z. You're going to look at the top three and that's where you're going to make your decision. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, you're doing this project that uh, obviously we've been involved with at the moment and you talked about it, I think, earlier, which is Asphyxiate. And um, why don't you first tell us what that is, for those who don't know, but then also tell us uh, why it was uh, such an obstacle to overcome because you did say, I believe, I didn't think I could do this and this was a paradigm shift. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Asphyxiate is a short film. Uh, which centres around emotional abuse, gaslighting, uh, narcissistic behaviour, whatever you want to call it. And it came from a series of writing that I did after going through that experience. So I came out of a very toxic relationship. And at the time I struggled with anxiety, insomnia, uh, various things that made me question what had really happened. I knew that there was elements of physical abuse in the relationship and I knew the person didn't treat me the way that they should have. But I don't think I fully understood the extent of what had happened because it was the physical stuff that made me leave. It was never the emotional stuff. And so I started writing. I didn't really know how to handle things at the time. Um, and the being an artist, <laughs> I used, and I like writing. I've written poems since I was little. I started, I just started getting out on paper, mm-hmm. um, as a way to kind of deal with it, to kind of, to express myself because during the relationship, I never spoke about it. Not many people knew what was going on. And after the relationship, I was so embarrassed and so ashamed that I'd let something like that happen to me. Writing became my my way of of my 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 arena for expressing how I really felt. Even some of my like my best friend said to me the other day, she was playing the role of someone who'd been abused, and she said to me, uh, "Michaela, I'm really struggling with the vulnerability because the only thing I ever saw from you was strength. Because obviously, I imagine that's the only thing I wanted to show because you are filled with such shame. It's the only way I can." I can put it, you feel very ashamed. So I started writing, um, and I wrote a lot, hell <laughs> of a lot. Uh, and this went on for about 10 months. And during this period, I was reading a lot. I'd lost a sense of who I was. I didn't recognize myself anymore. Um, I, I was in this phase where I was self-evaluating everything that I did and my behaviour with people. I've never been like that before, ever. And I kind of looked at everything I'd written and I was like, this, this story needs to be told because I didn't realise the extent of the emotional abuse. I didn't understand that I'd been gaslighted until afterwards. Until about three months afterwards, I realised, oh my God, prior to this relationship, I'd been in a relationship for seven years. Okay, so I'd come out of that one not long after in a very vulnerable state, got pulled into this other relationship, which flew and it was really heavy and it was really intense to begin with. And I didn't want it, but I let it happen. 
and coming to terms with that and understanding what had happened and why it happened um, was hard. But then I realised that there's other people in this situation. There's a lot of people who don't know the small telltale signs. And, and this is the important part that I wanted to do with Asphyxiate. I wanted it to show the, the, the small hints that something is not right. Because it's not, just because you don't get hit, you, you never hit me, never punched me. The, the, the physical abuse was, was a shake or it was a grab and there was, there was bruises, but it was never a hit or a punch. So you, so you, you, don't, you don't think, oh, I'm, I am a victim of physical abuse. Mm-hmm. And when, when they are controlling you and, and, and deciding who you see and when you see and where you are, you don't, you don't see that as control. You see that as care. Because they tell you that they care about you and they need to know where you are. Yeah. And these smaller things, these are the things that I wanted to focus on because in the beginning, you don't notice them. It's like you're you're like, oh, they just really care about me. That's why they're doing that. And then they get bigger and bigger and bigger to the point that you've lost yourself. You don't know who you are anymore. And you've distanced yourself from everyone in your life. And they are fundamentally your be-all and end-all. They have financial control over you. They have control over who you see, what you do, what you wear, Mm -hmm. your weight, all of these things. And the thought that the only reason I left was because one night it got so physical, I thought you might kill me. That scared me because some people, I say people because this happens to women as well as men, as, as not just in relationships, romantic relationships, but in work. Some people don't have that. I was, I feel lucky that it got to that level and I was able to leave. Because if it didn't, I might still be in it. I might not have left. Mm-hmm. And a lot of women and men and people don't leave and they are still in it. So I wanted to create something with everything I've written down to kind of show share my story Mm -hmm. um, and to hopefully highlight to other people who are going through a similar thing that it's not right yeah and that they're not alone so that they can speak out yeah one thing um, one thing I was interested in picking up on was um, because I think I think the word uh, gaslight is, is for some people a neologism they might not quite know what what you mean by that. So why don't you sort of elucidate that, that term for us? Um, for me, he made me feel like everything I saw was my perspective was just my perspective. It wasn't real. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had no control over anything. I felt like, I felt like everything I did was to please him and I couldn't be myself anymore because it was wrong to be myself. Mm -hmm. It's like they totally distort your sense of reality. You'd have an argument and you'd say, you shouldn't have done that to me. Well, you made me do it. You made me do it because you did this, this and this and this and this. I remember I'd be in an argument, not an argument, but we'd yeah, an argument. There, there would be arguments where I would be crying my eyes out mm-hmm. and he would be raging and he would say, this is the problem. You're so angry all the time. Mm-hmm. 
And I'd be like, oh my God, maybe I am angry. Like what? But in my head, I was like, I'm just feel very emotional. But what I didn't realize is that he was projecting his own anger onto me mm-hmm. and calling me angry, even though it was clear, like looking back, I'm, I'm crying my eyes out. Mm-hmm. And anger isn't present, it's despair. And, but they make you, they make you feel like um, that you are, that you are this person. Mm-hmm. So you start changing, start changing who you are. Yeah. Um, so it, it, in an altercation, I can get a little bit nervous in a, a, a conflict or a dispute. So if I put my case forward and then someone pushes back against it, um, I will usually default to thinking, I'm, you know, I, I'm probably wrong here and not in some noble or virtuous way, just in uh, the kind of, oh, if they feel strongly enough about this, that they've pushed back against what I think, then they're probably right about it. And um, I feel like what you were describing there in terms of the uh, the gaslighting uh, uh, idea is, is like uh, if someone is quite clearly um, infringing your... Um, what would you call it? If someone's quite clear, clearly misbehaving and you say, it looks like you're doing the wrong thing here, then they will imply or suggest directly that it's just subjective. This is just your perspective. You're actually imagining this. What I'm doing is normal and you have the wrong grip on it. Absolutely. And phrases like, well, that's neither here nor there. Well, we're not talking about that now. I don't know what you mean. I don't remember that. Yeah. Your, your perspective is disregarded. No, you would, you would say that. They, that's, those are some of the things that he would say to me right. to disregard anything I said and it would be put onto me so when arguments arose it was usually because I did something wrong mm-hmm. and they didn't just go on for like 20 minutes they went on for hours mm-hmm. because I was incapable of having a conversation mm-hmm. because I needed to listen to him because mm-hmm. what he knew was best he would talk to me like he was my dad mm-hmm. looking back it was like there was this authoritative figure and what he did in the beginning was he became the person that he thought he, he rinsed me of all knowledge of my upbringing, of, of what I wanted, why my past relationship failed. And he mimicked what I wanted. He, he mimicked that behavior. And then he used that knowledge against me and told me I had abandonment issues. And this was why it was affecting my behavior right now. And he's willing to work through this with me. And if it's going to work, I needed to listen yeah. So and yeah. You start believing it. So it's like in order to um, in order to what would you say? Um, in order to gain control over someone else, then you give them the impression that you know I am the one with the objective viewpoint. I see things as they are. You have a subjective viewpoint. Yours is quite subject to distortion, and you know it can get things wrong. So if you only listen to me, then we'll get through this. Distortion is a key word there. Right. I felt it was completely, my, my views were completely distorted all the way through the relationship. And it's weird because you feel like a tug. There's something in your gut is saying that something isn't, isn't right and it's, it's not. But then you, you see them and, and, and they're crying. Like he would get so angry that he'd burst into tears. And you'd see that person, you'd be like, God, they must, like, he, he's caring. Like he's, I'm, mm. I'm, I'm pushing into this level now. Like, it, and you see a little boy, a little child, and you're just like, you know, he would physically attack me and I would go over and console him. Mm-hmm. And there was never any recognition of what he'd done either. Like he would never accept that he'd done something wrong. He wouldn't even bring it up sometimes. It was weird. Yeah. The only thing we'd bring up is how I made him do it or how my behavior got got us to that, that point. 
Yeah. And so I'm, I'm not unfamiliar with the, the, the beneficial effects of writing uh, autobiographically, but then also, you know, uh, creating, let's call it some piece of art in order to process these experiences and get past them and relegate them to the past instead of having them hang on to your soul in the present and the future. <laughs> and so is this where asphyxia came from, trying to process this and get past it? Oh, God, yeah. yeah. I, I think I'd gone through life, whenever I hit a hurdle, I kind of buried it, buried a lot of some of my past traumas. Mm-hmm. And with this one, I knew that that wasn't going to work. That technique wasn't going to work anymore. I needed to face it. Um, so the writing came and then the film came and I was scared. I was so scared to, to write this film and to get it out there because ultimately I am still scared of this person on some level. But, and I'm, I'm not afraid to accept that. And that's okay. That is okay because that's understandable. However, it's what I do with that fear. You know, do, do I do I give way to it or do I use it as a springboard to, to share my story and hopefully allow others to to raise their voice to it as well? Because this behaviour is is not acceptable and it can't go on and there needs to be a change. We need to raise awareness of it. Yeah, and um, one uh, angle that I really, uh, I really do like with this film, because obviously I've seen the film having worked on the sound and... Um, I, I did an exercise uh, called the past authoring program, which is uh, if you have things that are bothering you in the past, uh, you write about them as completely as you can, and that helps you to overcome them. Um, but uh, go, this is going to another level. It's not just writing about it. It's actually assembling a crew to remake those experiences on film, which I uh, I think, I don't know, was it particularly, uh, was it difficult to actually make the thing to actually act as yourself, re, uh, re- reliving these experiences. Absolutely. Yeah, it's the hardest thing I ever had to do. So when I wrote Asphyxia, I never intended myself to play the, the part that I played of me, I suppose, yeah. uh, because I thought it would be too difficult. But then I realised, well, who, who am I? I can't even play the role. Like, this is my story. I, who am I to say that this happened to me and to raise my voice, but then to give it to someone else? Mm-hmm. It just felt like it would be a cheating way out. Like, mm. And potentially, maybe it was part of my process of healing as well. Like, okay, let's face it, let's face it head on um, and, go through, and go through it again, I guess, because that's what it felt like when I was filming it. So, yeah, it's, it's also, I knew that no one would play that part as accurately as what I would play it. I'd watch them and I'd go, no, that's not what it was. Yes. Like, it's, it, it, it came out with the writing. So, you know, sometimes my director would be like, I'm not really sure like about this line. And I'd be like, it's the way it's said. Mm-hmm. It's not the line you have to, because that's what it is with gaslighting. It's weird, actually. You you read a script on a page and if it's, if it's truthful, I think sometimes it doesn't come through. It's all in the subtext. It's all in the meaning. And obviously I was very lucky. I had a director who was so open to how things should be said. And that she was brilliant. Um, I can't thank her enough for, for giving me that opportunity. Um, but yeah, it was, it's in the delivery of everything. Um, not because, you, you know, you can say, for example, uh, that dress looks nice on you. But then you can say it in a way where you know it doesn't, you know, it's the subtext. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, 
but yeah, going back to it, it was it was one of the hardest things that I ever had to do after filming Asphyxiate because also it's kind of like when you're acting and you're in that state, you, I had to disengage so much so that I didn't break down and just cry the whole way through the film because that was a fear that I might do, that I might go back to that place and that it, I just wouldn't be able to play the part truthfully. But then also you can't become numb to it either. Yeah. So you have to sit, you have to live it like you do any other role. And the only way I could do that is to think of it as another role, not think of it as me, think of it as another role. Um, so I could dissociate it enough, but then use my abilities and actually to draw on the emotions that were required for those moments in time. Yeah. And that was hard. And sometimes it was uh, unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. I remember halfway through shooting, I, after one of the quite physical scenes, I went upstairs and I burst out crying. I literally just burst out crying. Um, and then after filming, I had about two weeks where the insomnia and the anxiety came back and the dreams. Um, so it was a hard process, but I feel that it was one of the most, um, one of the most psychologically uh, healing processes yeah. that I've ever been through in my life. Yeah, I mean... I'd be interested to know. Do you, if you do, you feel like it it was burdening you less the experience after having made the film? Yes. Yeah. 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 So that's really good. There's two things that I thought were interesting as well. You said that because obviously uh, uh, Nicole, the the director, Nicole Potts, would say, you know, I, I'm not really. I don't think this line would happen this way. But it's it's stranger than fiction because then your response would be, well, it it actually did happen this way. <laughs> it's just an account of reality. Exactly. And that's some of the conversations that would happen. Also, other conversations that would happen would be the opposite. So Nicole said to me, there's a monologue in the film. And she said to me, Michaela, we need a monologue. We need something strong. We need some strength. And I was like, but that didn't happen. Like, yeah. I didn't say those words. And she was like, no, we need it. And I fought her on it a little bit. Not fought her, but because uh, we had a brilliant relationship throughout. But I was a bit like, well, I don't understand. I couldn't get, I couldn't, I couldn't get it in my head how and why this person would say what they said at that moment because I never did and then she said to me she went Michaela you want what's the purpose like what what do we want this film to do and I went well I want to encourage people to leave and she was like so you need to show strength so this monologue is needed because yeah. it needs to show everything that you want it to show so I wrote the monologue and she was right as usual it worked <laughs> and um, yeah so it, it was it's you know it's always a constant um, compromise when you're working especially like the writer being on set and being the actress yeah. uh, she had a lot to contend with then but I think we we compromised well uh, we both had Nicole you know finding Nicole she was the only director I asked, actually. Something in my gut said that she needed to direct this film. I can't even explain. Mm -hmm. cannot even explain why. But something in my gut, and she read the script, and she, she went with me. She explored everything with me. And she tried to understand everything that had happened. And I think that shows, I think it shows in the film. Yeah. And um, one, another angle that I like on the, the film itself, or, you know, the, 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 the meta context of it is that one of the problems you were facing was that you weren't sure if your account of uh, reality was reliable. That's the process of gaslighting, right? It's where they make you feel, no, no, your, your yeah, uh, perspective is distorted. And so actually enshrining it this way is a way of um, 
I'm perhaps overcoming that anxiety. Do I even know what if this is, you know, what is real? You lay it down uh, as an account, you know, as a very vivid account of your memory, put it in and put it into, into film. And um, that's a, a good, uh, what would you say, maybe retaliation or response to that attack on your own uh, sense of sense of understanding reality. I wouldn't use the word retaliation mm-hmm. because I don't feel like it's a retaliation. Um, I feel like it's an acceptance of what happened. And I don't feel the need for a retaliation because I don't think about this person negatively. I actually feel sorry for him. I think if that's what you put me through, what's going on in your own head? Because you don't even know what you're doing. And I don't think he means it. I don't think he means to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, you go through different stages in this process. And that's one of the the biggest things I think that's helped me. Because I don't I don't hate or resent him. Um, I kind of hope he watches it so that he understands. But I don't think he will. I don't think he will change. Um, but there's definitely no hostility there. This is more of an acceptance film, an acceptance of what happened and a moving forward and a moving on and a highlighting film. Um, an acceptance that I suppose my gut was right when you drawing back from like this distortion, my gut was right and things did happen the way that I saw them in the past. Yeah. yeah. So what does the future hold? Uh, what are you doing with the film? Where are you going with it? Well, we've submitted it into quite a few festivals. So mm. we'll, we'll see. We've just had our first um, acceptance uh, into Biff. So that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully it will run the festival circuit. And then I'll speak to Nicole about how she wants to get it out there into the public viewing yeah. after that. Because obviously we can't do that right now. Yeah. Um, but hopefully it, it does well in the in the festivals where we're, we've we've submitted to some quite high caliber festivals that are BAFTA and Oscar um, you know potentials to go there so so maybe it will go go there maybe it won't but um, for now I'll, I'll just run with it and see what happens yeah did you get that moment when the 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 shutter started coming down at the start of March where it's like are you kidding me this year we have to lock down I was just about to get going with this project yeah it was a, you know what it was a bit I was a, I was a little bit like oh god typical but then I was kind of like well the festivals will still probably run they'll still run online this this short film isn't about winning awards this short film is about raising awareness so mm-hmm. okay it will be really disheartening if um you know we don't get the um I suppose it's praise isn't it mm-hmm. um but it's more than that. That's that's not why we made this film. It goes deeper. It goes beyond that. Um, and getting into festivals and whatnot is is great for um, promoting the film, and and with that promoting awareness. Um, but I'm not too worried about uh, the implications of coronavirus on the festival circuit. I think you just got to run with it. You just got to take it as it comes uh, we've created an incredible project that has a lot to say and yeah it's just about getting it out there now I suppose good I'll, I'll look forward to uh, seeing what the future holds 
Absolutely. <laughs>